You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 301 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As you guys will recall, we've spent the last couple or three episodes talking about Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. But with this episode, we'll turn our attention to Fighting Joe Hooker and the Army of the Potomac. In Alan Gelzo's book, Gettysburg, The Last Invasion, he points out that, quote, a great deal of trouble lay at the very top of the Federal Army, and truer words were perhaps never spoken, because a great deal of trouble did indeed lay at the very top of the Federal Army. As y'all know, throughout the course of the podcast, we've chronicled the trials and tribulations, as well as the controversies and commanders associated with the main Union Field Army in the Eastern Theater, from Urban McDowell to George McClellan to John Pope to Little Mac again, then to Ambrose Burnside, and most recently to Joseph Hooker. Gelso describes Hooker as, quote, a loud-mouthed bruiser with blazing bright eyes who projected a confidence which he did not, in the hollow core of his personality, really have. Yikes, right? Well, it's actually kind of hard to argue with that description based on how Hooker had schemed to get command of the Army of the Potomac and how he had then lost his nerve at Chancellorsville. Remember, Fighting Joe had promised to force Robert E. Lee and the Rebel Army to, quote, either ingloriously fly or come out from behind his defenses and give us battle on our own ground where certain destruction awaits him, end quote. But although Hooker, before starting out on his campaign, was sure of himself to the point of arrogance, it turned out that when push came to shove, he couldn't back up his big talk. After gaining a tremendous advantage over his opponent with a brilliant flank march, Fighting Joe had then stopped in the wilderness and surrendered the initiative to Lee, who gladly seized it. Hooker had an overwhelming numerical advantage over Lee at Chancellorsville, but despite that advantage, he allowed the rebel commander to swing a gigantic left hook through the tangled woods of the wilderness. 
That Confederate attack, led by Stonewall Jackson, sent one of the Federal Corps, the 11th, fleeing in confusion. The next day, Hooker then abandoned Hazel Grove, a key piece of high ground in the center of his defensive line. Things went from bad to worse for, for Hooker when he suffered a concussion when a cannonball smashed into a porch pillar he had been leaning against at the Chancellor House. Then, without even bothering to call up two unused corps of his army, a physically dazed and psychologically defeated Hooker decided to call it quits, and he ordered a retreat back across the Rappahannock. And with that, Fighting Joe's grand promises of victory came to nothing. However, despite the fact Hooker had handed Lee a spectacular victory at Chancellorsville, the Army of the Potomac itself survived its battering there in far better shape than it had Fredericksburg. Edwin Coddington, in his classic and excellent study of the Gettysburg Campaign, writes that although losses had been heavy, the damage to the army was more psychological than physical. Coddington says, quote, The general opinion in the army, especially among the officers, was that General Hooker himself was responsible for the fiasco at Chancellorsville. They felt that the army had suffered an ignominious and unnecessary defeat, and that Hooker could not escape the blame for it. However, as we'll see, what Joe Hooker tried to do in the aftermath of the battle was precisely that. That is, he tried to escape the blame for the fiasco at Chancellorsville, and he would do it by throwing three of his corps commanders under the bus. Following the Army's previous battle at Fredericksburg, Ambrose Burnside had manfully taken responsibility for the defeat upon his own shoulders. Joe Hooker did not do that. Nor did he lay blame for the defeat on the enemy's supposed superiority in numbers or on a lack of support by an uncooperative administration in Washington, as Little Mac had done after the Seven Days. Instead, Hooker let it be known that, as far as he was concerned, the real architects of the defeat at Chancellorsville were three of his lieutenants, Otis Howard, John Sedgwick, and George Stoneman. Hooker threw each of those corps commanders under the bus for different reasons. Howard, who let his 11th Corps be victimized by Stonewall Jackson's flank attack, Sedgwick, who repeatedly mishandled command of the Army's left wing, and Stoneman, the Army's cavalry commander, who utterly failed to carry out his assignment to cut Lee's communications. At this attack on several of, their, of its own, the Army of the Potomac's high command took offense and closed ranks against Joe Hooker. You all may recall that previously on the podcast, we talked about how there was a quote-unquote general's revolt against Burnside after the debacle at Fredericksburg. Well now, after the fiasco at Chancellorsville, a new general's revolt occurred, this time against Hooker. Perhaps the main reason this new uprising picked up steam rather quickly was Hooker's lack of constituency among his top lieutenants. 
By that we mean, of the army's eight corps commanders, only three, Howard, Stoneman, and Dan Sickles, could be said to owe their positions to Hooker. And after his condemnation of Howard and Stoneman for their failings in the just-concluded campaign, well, Hooker had just alienated them, so only 3rd Corps Commander Sickles had any reason to still pledge loyalty to Hooker. And of course, it was somehow fitting, in a what-goes-around-comes-around sort of way, that Hooker would now reap the whirlwind after he himself had set an unfortunate precedent with his noisy series of complaints against McClellan and Burnside. With the exception of Sickles, the Army of the Potomac's high command was of one mind in laying blame for the defeat at Chancellorsville squarely and solely at Hooker's feet. Chancellorsville, these generals decided, was a battle that should have been won and would have been won if only Hooker hadn't lost his nerve. For example, Division Commander John Gibbon concluded that Hooker had, quote, shown a complete want of backbone at the wrong moment. Fifth Corps Commander George Meade, in a letter to his wife, said that, quote, General Hooker has disappointed all his friends by failing to show his fighting qualities at the pinch, end quote. Meade added that this failure on Hooker's part had shaken everyone's confidence in the commanding general, quote, particularly among the superior officers. 12th Corps Commander Henry Slocum and 2nd Corps Commander Darius Couch would act as ringleaders of this latest general's revolt, although at first they don't seem to have coordinated their efforts. At any rate, at Chancellorsville, Slocum's disenchantment with Hooker's generalship morphed into lasting personal hostility. Then Couch was a West Point classmate and disciple of George McClellan, and like Little Mac, he was also exceedingly careful and cautious. Darius Couch was the most senior of the Corps commanders, and as such was technically Hooker's second-in-command. However, Couch's first loyalty was still to McClellan, whom he longed to see restored to command of the army. Abraham Lincoln and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck visited the army in its encampments across from Fredericksburg soon after the Battle of Chancellorsville. Halleck met with the Corps commanders, and they expressed, in the words of Couch, quote, great dissatisfaction among the higher officers at the management at Chancellorsville. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. With Lincoln and Halleck visiting the Army, it was Slocum's idea to get a majority of the Corps commanders to sign a petition which would be presented to the President. The document would call for Hooker's replacement by the general's agreed-upon choice, George Meade. To that end, Slocum, Couch, and John Sedgwick, all of whom were senior to Meade, sent Meade their assurances they would be pleased to serve under his command. Now the pivotal figure in this scheme was obviously George Meade, but he flatly rejected Slocum's proposal. Meade said he wouldn't participate in any such plot against Hooker. Meade did go on to say, however, that if the president should ask for his vote in a formal council of the Army's top generals, then he would vote that Hooker should be replaced. And so, although more fair-minded than his fellow corps commanders, Meade still seems to have felt that, moving forward, Hooker wouldn't be able to command effectively any longer, now that he had clearly lost his, the confidence of his lieutenants. With Meade refusing to support his scheme to oust Hooker, Slocum backed away from presenting his petition to the president. Darius Couch, though, made his own approach to Meade at this time. It's unclear what exactly Couch proposed, since all we know about it is Meade telling his wife in a letter that he, quote, declined to join Couch in a representation to the president. Frustrated in this effort at direct action to oust Hooker, the conspirators went to work behind the scenes. Word of the new general's revolt got back to Washington, where General Heinzelman, who commanded the Capitol's defenses, recorded in his diary that there was, quote, great dissatisfaction within the officer corps. Andrew Curtin, the influential Republican governor of Pennsylvania, paid a visit to the army and brought word back to the White House that Hooker had lost his general's confidence. In this regard, Curtin mentioned particularly two natives of the Keystone State, Meade and First Corps Commander John Reynolds. Although at least in Meade's case, it seems he never expected that Curtin would pass along his criticisms of Hooker to the president. And then the leaders of the General's Revolt also enlisted the press in the usual way, that is, with leaked stories that painted Hooker's performance at Chancellorsville in the worst possible light, and played up his incompetence in managing the battle. For Abraham Lincoln, the critical aspect of this turmoil was Hooker's support, or lack of it, by his top lieutenants. This had been a major factor in the president's decision to replace Burnside 
and it was becoming Lincoln's prime concern here with Hooker. In fact, on May 14, 1863, a week after his return from visiting the army, Lincoln wrote to Hooker and warned him of dissension in his officer ranks. I must tell you, the president wrote, that I have some painful intimations that some of your corps and division commanders are not giving you their entire confidence. This would be ruinous if true. In that letter, Lincoln was telling Hooker that the general had a problem on his hands and that it had come to the president's attention and Lincoln was troubled by it. After getting the president's letter, Hooker went up to Washington to discuss the matter. He told Lincoln he had no idea who the disillusioned generals might be, nor did he suspect anyone. This seems a bit hard to believe, but at any rate, Hooker said his lieutenants were free to visit Washington so that the president himself might, quote, ascertain their feelings. For a veteran schemer like Hooker, inviting his enemies to go to Washington and talk to the president seems like a monumental blunder, especially since, initially, Lincoln apparently intended to stick with Hooker because he didn't want to be seen changing generals after every battle. Nevertheless, soundings were taken for Hooker's replacement. For example, Winfield Scott Hancock, a divisional commander under Couch, wrote his wife that he had been approached, but assured her that he wouldn't accept should the command be offered. Hancock, a staunch McClellanite, explained that, quote, I do not belong to that class of generals whom the Republicans care to bolster up. When the subject of commanding the army was mentioned to John Sedgwick, he said Meade was the only choice. Then on May 22nd, Couch went to Washington and gave the president his resignation, saying he could no longer serve under Hooker. Since he was the most senior of Hooker's lieutenants, Couch was asked about taking command, but he begged off and urged that Meade be given the post. Lincoln accepted Couch's resignation, which benefited the Army of the Potomac since, with Couch's departure, the highly capable Winfield Scott Hancock would take over the Second Corps. Another White House visitor on June 2nd was John Reynolds, who had heard that he was being considered for the Army command. However, earlier in the year, Reynolds had written home of his disgust at the way the Army of the Potomac was being managed, saying, quote, If we do not get someone who can command without consulting Stanton and Halleck in Washington, I do not know what will become of this army. End quote. Apparently, Reynolds, with his desire to be free of any dealings with Secretary of War Stanton and General-in-Chief Halleck, stated his terms in pretty much those same words when he visited with Lincoln, although he surely knew full well that this would rule him out of consideration. However, Reynolds did speak by his own admission, quote-unquote, very freely, about Hooker's shortcomings, and he urged the president to appoint Meade in Hooker's place. With the notable exception of Hooker's loyal friend Dan Sickles, 
The other generals who visited the White House during this time were no doubt as candid with their advice as were Couch and Reynolds. Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase, Hooker's strongest ally in the administration, warned him that it was a mistake to let his top lieutenants come to Washington, quote, to tell their several stories. As we'll see in a future episode, Hooker's relief from Army Command on the eve of the Battle of Gettysburg would come in the midst of a battle of wills with General-in-Chief Halleck. But we wanted to use this show to talk about the uprising which occurred in the aftermath of Chancellorsville, so that you, dear listener, could see it was this new General's Revolt which actually set the stage for Hooker's removal. After Chancellorsville, Joe Hooker found himself between a rock and a hard place. He had virtually no support from his chief lieutenants, most of whom had instead announced their preference for their own candidate, George Meade. We really can't overstate the fact that the other general's lack of confidence in Hooker was a matter of grave concern to Abraham Lincoln, especially once the Confederate Army started to move in early June and a new campaign was underway, which meant another showdown with Robert E. Lee was almost certainly looming in the near future. It's interesting that this general's revolt, unlike the earlier one that brought down Burnside, produced fewer negative professional consequences for the participants. In fact, as we mentioned earlier, the army actually benefited from Couch's departure since it allowed a true fighting general in the person of Hancock to rise to command of the Second Corps. As for Darius Couch, he would end up in command of the militia in Pennsylvania during the Gettysburg campaign. So he'll come up again in our story. And then afterward, he would lead a division in the Western Theater. Following Gettysburg, Henry Slocum went west with the 12th Corps, and although Hooker also went west, Slocum managed to avoid serving under him. Slocum would finish the war serving under Sherman. Meade's appointment to command of the Army of the Potomac still lies in the future here on the podcast. But for now, we'll just say that his rise to the Army's top spot brought an end to the Second General's Revolt. Once the man the disaffected generals had proclaimed as their choice was in command, they would have little excuse for complaint. Not to put too fine a point on it, but at Gettysburg, they would have to live or die with George Gordon Meade. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Lincoln's Lieutenants, The High Command of the Army of the Potomac by Stephen W. Sears. So last episode's book recommendation was Lee's Lieutenants. So we thought it only appropriate that this show's book recommendation would be Lincoln's Lieutenants, which is actually another re-recommendation. But if you want to learn some more on your own about the great deal of trouble that lay at the very top of the Federal Army, then you'll be hard-pressed to find a better place to start than Sears' book here. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website. 
which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we close in on the end of this show, we want to be sure to say thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, who are Brent, George, Charles, and Tobias. And thanks to Predipta for their donation this past week. All right, and thanks to all of you for tuning in to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.